0: Good morning, everyone, and it's good to see uh, some new faces and some uh, familiar faces back here. So, uh, aside from uh, the Sagers, are there people here who uh, were not here beforehand? Yes, okay, so we have a couple of people who are here uh, for the first time. uh, This whole winter week of of learning the theme is... Attempts of Jewish thinkers and Jewish Bible commentators over the years to try to provide rationales for individual mitzvot, not for the system as a whole, although sometimes our discussions have led us in the direction of trying to discuss what might be a rationale for the system as a whole. Uh, and that's easier on some level to provide a general uh, rationale for a legal system. And as I said in the first class, probably the reason that Uh, those of us who observe the laws of the countries in which we live, the reason that we do it is not because we buy into the rationale of any individual law in the uh, country, not because we agree with the criteria that decided that on the other side of the street here there shouldn't be any parking uh, this morning. We don't necessarily have to agree with that particular rationale, but we do buy into the idea of observing that it's good for the benefit of society that there should be laws, and if I want other people to observe those laws, I better observe those laws, and anyways, I don't want to go to jail. And that's the major reason why most of us listen to legal systems to the extent that we listen to legal systems. And again, reviewing uh, an idea that I uh, threw out the, uh, the, in the beginning of the first class. It probably was not all that important in Jewish circles to have a developed system of Ta'amei HaMitzvot when we had an enforcement system for Jewish law. And the reason that you knew that you uh, observed the law is because you didn't want to get punished. Or, because you wanted to have some of the benefits that accrue to a member of a community, benefits that you could not get in any other way. As I said uh, on Monday morning, if you lived in Europe 400 years ago and you didn't like Jewish law... The choices that you had were to go and become a Christian and then decide that you liked Christian law better. And there were no other choices. There wasn't the secular option that was available to you of saying, okay, I'm going to live a life where I, I pay no. Uh, where I, I do not accept the authority of any religious system. And. When I want to get married, I'll go to a secular authority to get married. When I want to get buried, I'll go to a a, a secular authority. There weren't any such things. You have to toe the line of a religious system. And I quoted uh, Yitz Greenberg, who said that uh, Rabbi Rabbi Yitz Greenberg uh, has said that all Jews today are Jews by choice. And that even those of us who feel, who have decided that we are mitzuvim, that we are commanded. And the reason that I am doing it is because I have been commanded. Why am I observing Shabbat? Because I have been commanded by God to observe Shabbat. Yitz Greenberg said, any of us who decide to define ourselves as being mitzuvim, we have decided to... to that was a decision that we made. Nobody is holding a gun to our head and no one has proven to us in an irrefutable proof like the proof that two and two is four. We don't have that same kind of certainty that we are mitzvim and we still, many of us, have decided to consider ourselves mitzvim but he said choice. And so it has to be recognized by Jewish educators that... All people who observe mitzvot do so because they have chosen to see themselves as being mitzuvim, and it helps if you believe in the rationales of the individual mitzvot. So we've gone through a number of rationales on Monday and Tuesday. The issue that we tried to, uh, you know, on Monday we tried to talk is it good or is it not good to be providing rationales for mitzvot and we considered some of the arguments that have been uh, raised uh, occasionally in history that it's counterproductive to explain that a mitzvah has a particular uh, rationale yesterday we tried to deal with the issue of whether we are looking for rationales that are on the level of the the rational rational are we looking for something that uh, conforms to logic, or are we looking for something for a way of rising above logic? That logic is uh, is good and fine, but that the Torah raises us to a level beyond uh, logic, and that the rationales for various mitzvot are to be is seen by leaving the level of logic and uh, the the two thinkers that we saw yesterday morning i'm not sure what you saw yesterday afternoon but yesterday afternoon was supposed to be about the issue of trying to find mystical uh, 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 rationales for the mitzvot but the uh, the issue that we saw in the morning was kind of the tension between the approach of Rambam and the approach of Ramban that Rambam says all i want are rational explanations all, and some might, add, might even say that they're kind of utilitarian types of explanations of mitzvot, that the, a mitzvah will accomplish some goal that will make your life better and make your life uh, simpler. And Ramban says that the mitzvot are there to uplift us, to kind of bring us to a different plane of understanding with the symbolic kind of meaning of, uh, for the mitzvot. So that's a fast summary of what we did for the last two days. And today, the issue is uh, Ta'ameha Mitzvot and polemics. Ta'ameha Mitzvot and uh, arguments against other religions. There's a famous Midrash that says that Abraham, uh, Avraham Avinu, was called Avraham Ha'ivri generally translated as the Hebrew, but scholars actually, there's interesting scholarly literature about what that word Hebrew uh, means, and some people connect it to the word Hapiru, which was a uh, a group that existed in Egypt. Uh, Where did this word uh, come from? And so a common rabbinic explanation is that Ivri means that he came from the other side of the Tigris Euphrates. He came from... Uh, he was a foreigner and uh, he was living in Eretz Israel, but he actually came from Mesopotamia. It was a way of saying that he was originally from the other side of the great rivers of the uh, of the ancient Middle East. But there's a, uh, a shocking Midrash that says that Avraham is called Avraham Ha'ivri because Hu me'ever the ve'chol ha'olam kulo ha-Ever ha'sheni. The world can be divided into two categories. There's Abraham and there's the rest of the world. But that's what... Abraham was... There's a line down the middle of the world. There are two parts to the world. And on one side you find Abraham and on the other side you find everybody else who is alive in the world. In other words, this Midrash is trying to suggest that... Of Judaism is a kind of separation of the Jewish people from the cultures that are around them, from the values that are around them. That that's what is essential to being Abraham or to being a descendant of Abraham. And I would say that while this uh, midrash is uh, very very stark, it is based on an idea that you find in many biblical texts: the idea that I quoted was it Monday. I think it was on Monday. Yes, uh, you know, What do they tell the Israelites in uh, the book of Vayikra? Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites. Those are the two experiences that you know. You know what it means to be an Egyptian. You know what it means to be a Canaanite. Don't be like any of, uh, any of those people. And that being Jewish is being different. There's a halachic concept of from that same chapter of VaYikra that we don't we try not to do things the way the other peoples do them. Uh, I can see around the room that there's some people who are not all that comfortable with this, uh, you know, this dismissing of the in of the entire uh, of the entire world, and I, I think that all of us uh, feel particularly living in a, uh, in a great democracy here in, uh, here in North America, we feel, you know, do we really want to say that we are rejecting everything in the lives of, uh, of the country in which we live? And most of us would answer resoundingly, no, we are not interested in rejecting everything. I think of the tendency... To follow that wi- the habits of the country and of the culture in which you live, uh, that tendency is so strong and so unstoppable. There's an old—I uh, assume there are people here in this room who, who speak Yiddish better than I do—but uh, there, there is this. Uh, so you'll pardon my mispronunciation if I uh, if I fall short here. But there's an old Yiddish expression. The way that it Christians, it Jews. In other words, the way that the Christians do it, that's the way we're going to end up doing it. Why is it that when uh, you read medieval uh, literature that came from Christian Europe, they say that when you enter a synagogue, if you come in from outside and you're dirty, you should wash your hands. And when you read literature that comes from Sparta countries, it says that you should wash your hands and you should wash your feet. Uh, is it because the feet were so much dirtier in uh, Muslim countries? I, I don't really think that that's, that that's it. It's because that's what Muslims did when they walked into their mosques. And what they still do, they walked into their mosques. And I, if I remember correctly, Rambam says that you can't die until you have washed your feet. And nobody in Christian Europe would have ever thought of something like that. The idea Rashi walking into shul and taking his shoes and his socks off and washing his feet, I think he would have thought you were nuts if you would have suggested that, uh, uh, that to him. And why? Because Jews end up despite all the attempts of the uh, of the rabbis to say that uh, that he's on one side and everybody still we do end up behaving the way that uh, the way that the society at large behaves and when you are a small minority group Uh, less than one percentage of the world's population and what is it here in the United States are are the Jews three percent of the uh, maybe two percent Yes although there was a fascinating article this is off top of a fascinating article in this week's, in this last Friday's uh, Jewish week or was it the forward I forget which one there was uh, suggesting that there might be doubts about those figures about uh, the Jewish uh, population there might be more Jews than everybody has been quoting uh, uh, professor Della Pargola, who's considered the world expert on uh, on Jewish demography has been arguing that uh, he recently argued that the Jewish community of Israel is larger than the Jewish community of the United States and this is the first time in over two thousand years that there are uh, uh, that the largest Jewish community of the world is in uh, in the state of Israel and I actually enjoyed very much quoting that statistic then there was this article on the front page of uh, one of those papers uh, uh, on Friday that suggested that Della Pargola might be wrong and that the Jewish community of the United States might actually be growing and not shrinking despite what rabbis love to tell us (laughs) Our service it's terrible. <laughs> Actually, uh, it, it, maybe uh, maybe it's not quite as bad as we thought uh, uh, as we thought that it was. Uh, I think that it's very important for a minority group, that whether we're. Uh, 1.9% or 2.1% of the population of this country, it is important for a uh, minority group not to, to take efforts not to get swallowed up by the majority. If there's something to be preserved in Judaism, then there has to be a, uh, an attempt to do things that are going to separate you from, uh, from the people who are the majority. Um, there is a, uh, I don't want to get into a long discussion, I don't even want to aside side on this issue, but just, you know, there is the issue of the, uh, th- that a lot of people talk about in the Jewish community today about how close should be the friendship between the Jewish community and the evangelical right wing because there are no, there are no friends of Israel. Like the evangelical, like of the state of Israel, like the uh, evangelical uh, right wing, and one of the arguments that is brought up is that you know you're living in a country where there are a lot more evangelical right wing Christians than there are Jews, and if you're becoming all buddy buddy with this group, what you know, what is going to be the result from a Jewish perspective? Uh, you know, there's the political issue of the uh, of. Us all wanting to help the state of Israel. So th- these are issues that I think that thinking Jews have to be confronting on a regular basis. What is my attitude towards the society in which I live? How separate do I want to feel from the society in which I live? Do I want to feel, uh, you know, all of us want to feel that we are citizens in this great country and that we uh, we are part of uh, part of the culture but we also want to feel and I think Halakha wants us to feel that we have a certain uh, a certain separation yes sure the, the the consciousness of being part of a minority group is driven home for those uh, who uh, have the uh, pleasure of living in uh, in small uh, small Jewish uh, Jewish communities the question is how many of the laws of the, there are laws of the Torah the, about which it specifically says like that, Quotation that I, uh, I told you uh, uh, a few minutes ago that I quoted on Monday when we uh, referred to the rationales for the rules of incest and that it was kind of shocking to see that the Torah introduced the rationales for the rules of incest by saying don't be like the Egyptians and don't be like the Canaanites which seems to be suggesting that the that incest was something that was practiced regularly among the Egyptians and among the Canaanites and the, uh, the Torah was selling this point to us by saying it's important that you not become like the Egyptians or like the Canaanites, and uh, the land will vomit you out if you behave like the Canaanites. The Canaanites are being vomited out of the land because they did not conform to the rules of uh, of, of incest, and that's why you should be. You know, we we, uh, we for those of you who weren't here, we all expressed the kind of surprise about this because we 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 generally think that incest is a value that is shared by most cultures, most most cultures of the world are avoiding uh, incestuous religion, that that it isn't particularly something, a Jewish value, we didn't see it as being a particularly Jewish value that would be separating you from the other cultures that you know, but curiously, the Torah in Vayikra uh, makes the suggestion that even something like that, the purpose of it was to separate the Jews, or the result of it was to separate the Jews from. from the culture in which they lived. So today we will be seeing various attempts of rabbis to explain uh, mitzvot that exist in the Torah and notice how polemical kinds of explanations insinuate themselves into uh, into rabbinic ideas on a fairly uh, regular uh, basis. So let's start with a text on the First page of the handout here. Again, going back to the Passover Seder. Everyone has a copy. There are more copies here if anybody needs a copy. Vahlu et Abasar balai lahazet lieshu matzot al mirorim yohaluhu altochlu mi menunah u vashevu shalbamayim kiim tliesh rosho al kiraav ve al kirbo. There are copies of text here. Once you stuff down, you can come back and uh, pick up some text. Um, that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. I apologize. I uh, you know, I lifted this translation from a free translation that's available on the uh, web and it's not a Jewish translation. I think that it would be better to uh, say matzah or something, in a group like this we don't have to say bread made without yeast. Uh, <laughs> Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, we all remember the story, the uh, original Paschal offering was being made on the night that, uh, that the Jews left Egypt, and you were supposed to have your Seder meal with your belt on and your coat on, ready to jump out of the door at the at the proper moment and uh, I understand that there are some uh, Spartac communities that still have customs like this of sitting at the Seder table in a way where you could be called out immediately to uh, to run out of the house uh, but you know <laughs> It's possible that the Mishnah that talks about not going jumping from seder to seder—you're not supposed to go seder hopping, according to the uh, according to the Gemara. You're supposed to stay at your own seder. Uh, it might be because, uh, because there was this tendency to say, "Okay, the, the, the reenactment is for us to sit right beside the door so that we can be jumping out." Say, okay, you know, you dress appropriately for jumping out, but don't jump out. Stay at home. Stay with the family. Don't go jumping from one uh, from one seder party to another uh, uh, to another seder party. There is a theory that that's in fact what afikoman means. There's this uh, uh, line in the Mishna- Mishnah that says, "Ein maftirin achar ha afikoman." which literally means after the pesach sacrifice there you should not add any afikoman uh, in a strange twist of jewish history the last piece of matzah that we eat at the seder these days we call it the afikoman but the original line in the mishnah says after the pesach sacrifice there shouldn't be any afikoman so uh Professor Boxer from the Jewish Theological Seminary, Zichrono uh, wrote, uh, wrote uh, about this issue, and he, he suggested that, uh, that afikoman uh, meant, uh, that it comes from two Greek words that mean after the meal, and it means after the meal revelry, afterwards, uh, there was common thing in Greek society. Uh, Boxer uh, made a fascinating suggestion that the uh, Passover Seder is modeled in some sense on the pattern of a Greek symposium. Anybody know what the word symposium really means in Greek? It doesn't mean a, uh, we have a panel of people talking about, uh, talking about an issue. Uh, a symposium means a wine-drinking party. And Plato wrote a book called the symposium which is a description of a wine drinking party that people uh, had where at the symposium the custom was that you would pick a topic and you would discuss it and Plato's famous symposium somebody suggested at this wine drinking party why don't we talk about love tonight and we'll all talk about what love really means Uh, if you've never read the symposium it's fascinating Uh, Really a fascinating work. And they said, gee, that's a great topic. Well, I'll talk about love. And they, uh, at the beginning of the symposium, somebody says, how many cups of wine should we drink tonight? <laughs> and they said, let's not make a rule tonight. Let's break from the standard pattern of the symposium. They used to set a rule. Everybody has to drink ten cups of wine. Twenty cups of wine or something like this to make sure that they were all as drunk as each other or whatever was the was the purpose of it. And so he sa- they say in the beginning of the symposium, we had a really rough symposium last night, and uh, we still some of us are still ha- hungover from last night's symposium. So tonight. We'll just make it optional. Everybody will drink only as much as they want. There won't be a requirement of the number of cups of wine that you drink. Now, Plato's text isn't the only text that describes to us what a... That's probably the most famous text that talks about what a symposium is like. And so Boxer suggested... I don't think that he was the one who originally came up with the idea. I think there was somebody back in the 20s or 30s who, who made the suggestion originally. But Boxer, in his book, The Origins of the Seder... Uh, suggest that, there, that in some ways the Seder has certain similarities to a Greek symposium but it is also structured in such a way as saying don't do all those things that a Greek person does in a symposium like don't go jumping through the streets in revelry afterwards which was common at the end of Plato's symposium they all, they, they, you know, the minstrel girls with the flutes uh, show up. There weren't any women at the symposium. Uh, and, but the minstrel girls with the flutes show up at the end of the symposium and they all go uh, in a, a drunken uh, walk through the, uh, through the streets of Athens or wherever it's, uh, wherever it's taking place. And that's what the line, Boxer suggests, means in the Mishnah. It says, Ein achar Don't do this kind of stuff at the end of your Seder. You know, We have a, an event Where we actually, we do recline at the table in the same way that the Greeks do. We do drink a set number of cups of wine in the way that the Greeks do. And we do talk about an intellectual issue in the way that the Greeks do at a symposium. So it is a fascinating idea that there's this kind of uh, tension where there are some ways in which we are copying uh, the Greek model and some ways in which we are rebelling against the Greek model. Yes? I'm sorry, again? Uh, I think ancient Greeks and Romans used to used to do that, so it could be uh, yes. It could it could very well be in in I'm um, not the biggest expert on symposia, but I think that it, uh, that that was part of uh, uh, yes uh, bulimic kind of uh, behavior uh, in order to allow people to eat more. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and you really do that. Yes, I've heard of it. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. I hope you all heard that. That You know, in, in her Seder. From which Mozar are you? Uh, Syria. Syrian. The Syrians and the Egyptians and the Iraqis do that. In the beginning of the seder, they take a matzah, they break it, they put it on their shoulders, and they start walking around the table and asking each other, "Where are you going? I'm going to Eretz Yisrael. Where are you coming from? I'm coming from Egypt." This reenactment of uh, walking around, but they don't take it out into the streets, right? No. no, no. no. Yeah. On, only inside of the. Right. right. Yes. The yachatz, after the yachatz, very nice. Okay, so (coughs) even in a later period of history, in the Mishnaic period of history, you can see that the the seder is structured in some way to be a little bit like what the non-Jews are doing and to be uh, also different from what the non-Jews are doing. But what about the original uh, text that we just read here uh, that describes how the Israelites were to celebrate that original uh, Pesach. Uh, Rashbam, in the 12th century, Rashi's grandson, uh, who I have mentioned uh, before, uh, writes, I'll just read it in English, and they shall eat the meat on the evening roasted. All of the details of eating this sacrifice are related to speed and to haste like a person who is in a hurry to leave. And if you look at it, that they, if you look at all the rea- Trying to find the ta'am of the mitzvah, uh, why do you roast the meat? Because roasting doesn't take that long. Every detail, he says, is for the purpose of doing it in a hurry. Uh, you want to construct the Seder meal. I guess this goes against... Uh, standard practice these days, but you want to construct your Seder meal in such a way that it will finish in in a hurry, at least in the days when they ate the Korban Pesach, when they ate the Pesach, Pesach sacrifice. And Rashbam even says that that rule that we talked about yesterday, the rule of not breaking any of the bones of the Korban Pesach, we saw various uh, attempts to deal with that rule, he says... That's like a person who is in a hurry. When, you're, when you've got lots of time, then you might consider uh, breaking the bone and trying to get the marrow out of the bone. But when you're in a hurry, you don't do that. You just eat quickly and you wouldn't, you wouldn't take the time to break the bones of the sacrifice. So that's one type of a tip of, uh, of dealing with the reasons for these commandments. The second attempt that you have on the sheet, I'll read it in English on the second page here, text number three. Those of you who can follow the Hebrew can follow the Hebrew if you wish and uh, can correct my translation if you don't like it. Uh, At the root of this mitzvah is the same idea that we wrote about the mitzvah of slaughtering the uh, Korban Pesach to remember the miracles of the Exodus from Egypt. That is why we were commanded to eat it specifically roasted. Why? For members of the royalty and their nobles commonly eat roasted meat as it is good and tasty. It is a good and tasty food. The rest of the people are only able to afford small amounts of meat, and so they eat it cooked together with other food in order to fill their bellies. If you This is an interesting and I think rational kind of explanation, it it does conform to what we know. If you don't have a lot of meat around your house, then, you know, you make something like a stew and you put a lot of uh, carrots and uh, potatoes into the pot and you can stretch, you can have a, uh, a meat meal without very much meat if you have cooked it. Rich people are the ones who roast their meat. Rich people are the ones who will eat meat without anything else uh, cooked together with it, and so this fits into the the uh, theory that he has about what the purpose of the uh, of the Pesach celebration is. That we uh, we saw yesterday a text in which he suggested in the Pesach celebration we should be trying to portray ourselves as being rich, as being nobility, as being free, as being carefree, and so. Why do we roast it? So, you, you notice we've seen two different explanations now. You roast it because that's a fast way of uh, cooking it, or you roast it because rich people tend to uh, to have roast meat for dinner. Incidentally, in our Ashkenazic circles, for those of you who uh, are interested, the common Ashkenazic position is that you don't eat roast meat today at the uh, at, at the seder because. Uh, uh, that was only the Paschal sacrifice and would look like we're eating a Paschal sacrifice when we don't have sacrifices anymore. Although I'm told that in some Sephardic circles, and I know that the, uh, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, who was a Sephardi, Rabbi Yosef haro who was a Sephardi, says that you should have roasted meat at the Seder. And at your Seder, the custom is that you do, Davka, have roasted meat. And uh, there are... Uh, pardon me? I'm sorry, what did you say?
1: Ethiopians,
0: Ethiopians also eat... Uh, I didn't know that, thank you uh, thank you very much. There's some Ashkenazim who insist on eating you know, something like flunk and like, you know, overly boiled uh, meat. I, I've met Ashkenazim like this who feel that if you have anything, you know, even like roast chicken, it might be too much like, uh, like roasting and that you're not allowed to do that. You have to have boiled chicken or boiled beef. I, I, Um, Yeah, let's not go there. (laughs) That's right. Um, And since we eat the Paschal offering to remember that we became free in order to become a nation of priests and a holy people, it is appropriate that when we eat that sacrifice we behave like free nobles. This is aside from the fact that eating the meat roasted reminds us of the haste with which we left Egypt. We were unable to dally long enough to cook it in a pot. So he, he, he admits that the text actually... Says the, you know, the, the text gave us a little bit of the rationale itself by saying that there is the haste principle, but he adds another principle into the text that it's to be act like a noble. Yes,
1: yeah.
0: <sighs> presumably. You know what nobles did? Uh, did the author of Sefer Achinuch in 14th century Christian Spain? He didn't know about any Jewish nobles, but he is presumably he notices that when he goes to a uh, to a regular Jew's house, he very often gets uh, cholent or some kind of stew, and that the rich nobles in society are the ones who are eating steak. That's uh, that's a. That's a you You have to have a certain level of uh, uh, of economic stability in order to serve steak or lamb chops or something like this uh, for dinner it's much uh, much easier to serve stew if you're at a lower level of uh, uh, of economy so yes i th- I think that he is he is saying that so we have this model here in some way of. Following what the non-Jews are doing, that uh, you know the Boxer's explanation of the structure of the uh, of the Seder as a whole and the Greek Symposium, and we have Sefer Achinuch talking about the nobles, and you point out very correctly that means the non-Jewish nobles. On the other hand, now for something entirely uh, different, Uh, text number four. Uh, I'll read it in uh, in Hebrew. Ibn Ezra, the Toavat Mitraim Tiz Shema Tomru Lonit Lehu Koltzor Ko Gishu Boham Mitrim, Talmud Lomar, Al Tochlu Mimenu Na. The Shema Tomar Lachtoch Arosh Vahakraim al Yakiru Mazot, Talmud Lomar, Rosho Al Kiraav al Kir. Or a commentary written in the 12th century, Northern France, uh, maybe 13th century, late 12th century, early 13th century, the Balayat a ala Torah. Uh, maybe I'll save my voice a little. Anybody want to volunteer to read the English? Any volunteers? Thank you. Text four. fascinating explanation everybody understand uh idea it's to stick it to the Egyptians in your face and uh, uh the chizkuni who lived in the 13th, 14th century in the south of France says it kind of even more clearly you read number 5 in English well, that's right it's, you know you have to stick to them yes yes Excuse me. There are texts uh, here if you'd like some. Um, uh, yes. Go ahead. Yes. I I really agree with you that this kind of explanation is being offered by people who are living in a society where they are downtrodden, where they feel discriminated against, where they would love to be sticking it to the, uh, the people who are around them. They can't but they can talk about how in those good old days when we were back in Egypt when we had a Korban Pesach, when we had a Paschal sacrifice, we roasted it so that the smell would be everywhere throughout the city. There, So that everybody was walking around saying, Oh my God, those Jews are roasting our God. And if they walked in... And they saw the roasting going on. It's like when, you know, you walk into a restaurant in Israel and you have a shawarma restaurant or in New York, and you see this, uh, this spit with the meat on it. And, you know, you'd like to know what animal it is, but who knows? How do you recognize what, they, what animal it is that they they actually are making the shawarma from? There are uh, their rules about what shawarma... I forget which animal is shawarma supposed to come here. It's supposed to be from lamb, yeah. Uh, but but uh, sometimes they put up other animals there instead of a lamb for uh, for making the shawarma but so that, be sure that they know since they worshiped these uh, these animals be sure that they know that it's a uh, that it's a sheep that's being uh, that, that's being roasted keep the head there roast the head together with the rest of the animal yes Right, right. Right. It is a, a statement that you should be trusting in God so much. He is taking us out of Egypt. You should know that. And I want you to demonstrate your trust by showing that you're willing to stick it to the people who could be easily killing you, oppressing you, or something like this because it's over. The oppression in Egypt is over. We're leaving Egypt tonight, and so we should do it in a demonstrative way where we show that we are no longer afraid of those, uh, those Egyptians. Like Sefer Achinuch at the top of page two here said, we should behave like nobles, like free people, to show that we are free people. And But the text four and five are saying, we should stick it to the Egyptians In a way that shows that we uh, are not afraid of them anymore. Yes, a hundred percent. Yes, yes, yes. Right. We all know uh, people who uh, talk about the uh, uh, the problem that some American Jews still have this fear. My yomru You know what will they say in and there? And people are afraid to stand out. You know, this is a uh, an, an an issue. Uh, Thershowitz, among others, uh, has written uh, has written about this issue about the assertiveness, uh, the newfound assertiveness of the uh, of the American Jewish community, and the fact that most of us are, uh, for better or for worse, not really concerned uh, about... Uh, how people will react to, uh, to to the fact that we are different and we are doing it our our own way. Most people see it, uh, Dershowitz sees it as a very po- positive uh, phenomenon. Others uh, see it. So here, though, there's no long-term relationship that's being developed with the Egyptians. This is your last night in your country, and they've been oppressing you for, uh, according to the rabbis, for 210 years. They've been oppressing you and enslaving you. Your last night in the country... You can do something symbolic that shows that you are not uh, not afraid of them. Yes. That's right. I agree with you. I agree with you entirely. You know. Uh, yes. Because it's the model that they knew. That's right. That's right. They knew that the Greek, that the Greek uh, occupiers of their country, when they wanted to get together to talk about something, they'd have this party where they would sit on couches and they would drink, uh, they would drink glasses of uh, uh, of wine and they would talk about an issue. And so, Boxer's theory is. Somewhat centered around the question of you know what do you what do you do with uh, with Pesach once the temple doesn't exist anymore then you need to find a new model there was a model that existed before and when the temple existed there was a model for Passover observance but what's going to be the model once the temple doesn't exist anymore so you look at the society around you is it you're asking I think I hear you asking is it conscious or is it subconscious I think it's most likely subconscious I don't think there was a collection of rabbis who got together and said so what are we going to do now well we all know about those symposia uh, should we uh, make a Jewish symposia it, it's hard to imagine I agree with you that it was conscious it was just yeah uh-huh
1: wow uh-huh
0: Very nice, very nice. Yes. Um, the younger, the younger Baruch. Baruch. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Who tragically died quite young, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, but he did manage to write this uh, this wonderful book. Uh, in, in a very short life, he did write, manage to write this wonderful book called The Origins of the, uh, Origins of the Seder. Yes? I go back to Phoenix where Mel
1: Gibson made these wonderful movies. A lot of my students said that their neighbors would not let their children speak to them and get them out of their houses. Wow. Yes. To
0: you right. Very. Yes. You know, I was uh, thinking of making that connection here. Then I decided better of it. But I, I if you brought it up, I
1: love
0: it. notice these two texts that talk about roasting the god, you know, slaughtering the god of the Egyptians. And what time of year is this? This is Passover, and Passover almost every year is at the time of Easter. And Easter is the time when the Christians are commemorating the fact that in their understanding, their incorrect understanding of history, the Jews were responsible for killing their God. Is there some connection, these Jews here living in a Christian country, and are talking about explaining the symbolism of the seder of the paschal sacrifice in such a way that it involves the uh the killing and roasting of the god of the Egyptians. i don't know i doubt if there is on a conscious level but on a subconscious level again it, it is extremely uh telling this kind of uh connection what you're going to say something? i didn't hear what you said. <coughs> Yes, yes, yes. That's right, for sure. And yes, that's right. And you know, we talked about that uh, uh, yesterday when we talked about uh, the Christian interpretation that the uh, uh, not breaking the bones was an allusion to uh, the Gospel of John and that uh, that whole business. So. Are the Jews in any sense buying into the symbolism of the Christians? There was an article, okay, I'm trying to remember who wrote the article. Uh, Professor Yisrael Yuval from the uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem wrote an article when he, uh, in which he pointed out that uh, Rashbam... Again, was the first one who connected the Afi Koman. Now, the afikoman is uh, you know that matzah that we eat at the end of the uh, uh, the we eat at the end of the seder. He connected it with the uh, with the korban pesach. He said this is like the this is remembrance of the korban pesach and the the, the messianic things. that rashbam wrote about this subject and. Uh, when you consider where Rashba- the Rashbam lives, among Christians who are talking about, uh, are talking about Jesus and about eating the uh, the flesh of uh, of Jesus, certainly Rashbam did not like Christianity and did not decide to model anything on Christianity. But he's living in a country where people are doing things of this nature. This tension that uh, you see, even in the description of the of the seder ceremony, the the ceremony that makes the Jewish people into the Jewish people. I hope you're sensing here that there are these elements that are similar to the cultures that are around them, and there are elements that are polemicizing against the culture around them at the same time. Um, a couple more interesting texts. You know, seder is something that we think about a lot, and uh, all of you will have to think of something to say at the Seder this year uh, when, uh, when the family gathers around, so maybe you'll have some uh, some text that will be of, uh, of use to you uh, in, in a few months. Uh, Ibn Ezra writes, Al merorim, Re perusho otu al minhag anshe tamid al shulchanam any volunteer to read it in english please text 6 in uh, in english don't be shy thank you they always have of but since the rabbis Chamutzim. When people go into a steakyah in Israel, when you go into a place where you eat roasted meat, there always are chamutzim. There always are pungent uh, things on the uh, on the table. It's, uh, people who enjoy eating roasted meat often enjoy eating roasted meat together with uh, very strong uh, 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 peppers or uh, or pickles or food of uh, of this nature. I, I hope I'm not making people. 10.30 in, uh, in, in the morning. Uh, so, <laughs> notice the little game that Ibn Ezra plays. Uh, you know, when I think of a reason for a, uh, an explanation of a verse and then I think of a better explanation for the verse and I'm writing a commentary, I don't necessarily have to write the first one that I thought of. Uh, you can just write, you know, the rabbis have told us that uh, mirorim means bitter herbs in order to remember the bitterness of our experience in Egypt. But he said, you know, I used to think, until I heard what the rabbis explained about it, I used to think that it means, uh, you know, the way Egyptians do it. Uh, Ibn Ezra, as I told you yesterday, was... uh, call him the Marco Polo of the uh, Jewish 12th century, who traveled around the world and did make it to Egypt in his travels uh, around the uh, around the world. And he knows that it's a very common thing to do in Egypt. So are, are Jews eating Maror at this original Seder because it's a nice way to eat roasted meat? Or... You know, I'm sure that that's all a, a very surprising explanation for all of you who thought that we were eating Maror uh, in order to remember the bitterness of our experience in Egypt. Although, when you consider that the, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, based on the, uh, on the Babylonian talmud suggests that the preferable thing to eat for Maror is what? Pardon me? Romaine lettuce, yes, and we all, you know, ever, ever since I, uh, I read that rule, and ever since I started eating romaine lettuce at the Seder, I, I just say to myself, Huh? What, you know, like, what am I doing here? Okay, we, yes. Why am I eating this maror? Because they embittered my life? Uh, the Egyptians embittered my life when I was there in Egypt, and then I bite into the romaine lettuce, which I eat probably about 300 days of the year. I eat romaine lettuce, for, uh, and I, I don't consider it embittering my life in any sense when I eat romaine uh, lettuce. I feel uh, deprived when they force me to eat iceberg lettuce because of the uh, because of the insect police who have decided that we can't eat the romaine lettuce. <laughs> but, but, but we don't have to uh, we don't have to go there. Uh, so. Ibn Ezra says, Ibn Ezra's actually providing a rationale for the biblical text that might actually work better with the experience that, uh, that I have at the say You know, we like to eat salad. Salad's a nice thing to eat when you're eating meat. You know, it does cut the... Uh, it, it does cut the... Uh, Greasiness of the meat, a little bit to eat something crisp and uh, pungent like uh, like the vegetables. So the salad can be a, uh, a very good thing to do. So this is another model of explanation of Tameh Mitzvot, which he insinuates in here. I always wonder with Ibn Ezra whenever he says, "I used to think that the meaning of the verse is thus and such." Uh, the uh, the I'll give you one example. There's a uh, any kohanim in the uh, in the room here? No kohanim in the room? Okay, you're a bat kohanim. Okay, so you might know the rules uh, for kohanim if you are uh, a... bat kohanim is allowed to go to a cemetery without any restrictions. A kohen is allowed... Uh, a male kohanim is allowed to go to a cemetery when? When is a male kohanim allowed to go to the cemetery? If upon the death of his parents... Or his siblings, or his spouse, his wife, or God forbid, his children. If his children pass away, his siblings, his parents, or his spouse. But okay, but the rabbis expanded it to married sister also. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, but the verse says, li li'shero akarov elav, laviv ulimo." a rabbinic statement that says things that are written down things that are part of the written Torah you should not recite by heart and you've seen me break that rule many times but now as I'm beginning to stumble on the words here I think that I will finally listen to the rabbinic instruction and I will uh, recite these words from the written Torah from a written text uh, in front of me the words are ki'im im hakarov elav So, what relatives did you, those of you who understand Hebrew, which relatives did you hear me mention uh, in that text? Yes, yeah, so she has to be too loved, But as I said, the rabbis expanded and said, it's true, uh, yes, I have, uh, I unfortunately have a Kohane uh, friend whose uh, married sister died and I remember I, I, uh, I asked him, what are you doing, uh, Stan, what are you doing, uh,? and he said, it's common rabbinic... I hadn't... I'd never looked into the issue, he said. It's the common rabbinic approach is that although midoraita, although from the Torah he shouldn't be going to his uh, sister's funeral, the halacha was that he should go to his sister's funeral, and he did. It's a very religious man, and fine Orthodox rabbi there conducting the... Okay. So, who is mentioned and who isn't mentioned in that verse? Again, I'll say it again in Hebrew. For those of you who know the Hebrew... You'll tell me who is mentioned and who isn't mentioned in the verse. Ki shero lav... The spouse is not mentioned. And the next verse in the Torah says, Lo Baal Be'amav Which is an extremely difficult Hebrew verse but could be translated as meaning a husband should not defile himself by making himself impure by going to the funeral. That's a possible translation of the text. So Ibn Ezra, who was a little bit of a, uh, pardon me for saying, a little bit of a mazik, a little bit of a troublemaker from uh, from uh, from time to time, writes in his commentary on this verse, "I used to think that these verses mean that." A husband should not go to his wife's funeral if he is a kohen, but then I saw what the rabbis had to say about the subject, and he says, la ipne da'atam. and of course i uh, I cancel out my own feelings because of the uh, because of the I, I abandoned this interpretation. But the question is, why do you write an interpretation that you have abandoned and they, that actually says the precise opposite of what you want? Now, it's, the Gemara discusses the possibility of such an interpretation, and the Gemara says that that interpretation is not correct. And the Gemara says that if you ever find a Kohain who says, "I do not want to go to my wife's funeral because of my understanding of this verse in uh, in Vayikra 21," you pick him up and you put him, you deposit him in the cemetery. Beside his wife's grave, he is not. A, it's not an optional thing. The rabbis are so, one might say, convinced of the correction of their interpretation, or convinced that that's what the law ought to be. That the rabbis say that the husband is not given the option of adopting that interpretation. Even Ezra writes, "I used to think that that was the rule, but now I don't think that that's the rule anymore." To see somebody with respect for the simple meaning of the word of the meaning of the words of the Hebrew text is he feeling that he he cannot do a disservice to the Hebrew words and he has to tell you what the simple understanding of the text is but he wants you as a Torah observant Jew to be sure that you know that the rule is that if a Kohen's wife passes away the Kohen should not say oh I'm too holy to go to my wife's funeral don't do that now This is creating a possible interesting tension between Biblical law and Rabbinic law, but uh, it's better to have a tension between Biblical law and Rabbinic law, as far as I'm concerned, than to have Kohanim who are not going to their wives' funerals. Yes? Yes. So he said, I used to think that that's the interpretation, but I don't think so anymore because I've heard about the rabbi. So I'm just suggesting that every once in a while when Ibn Ezra does that, he might have an agenda that he'd like you to, at least intellectually, maybe not halacha, maybe not on a halachic basis, but intellectually he'd like you to entertain that idea. I think that Ibn Ezra did believe in you know, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Uh, some of you might have picked up that I... Uh, and I, I mentioned this before, that the Pashtanim, the Pshat-oriented uh, Bible commentators for the 12th, from the 12th century are uh, are my intellectual heroes. People like Ibn Ezra and people like Rashbam, who were part of the halachic system and who still allowed themselves to be free thinkers in various ways about the meaning of biblical texts. And I find that a model... Just to be a little uh, personal and autobiographical, I find that as a model that's uh, appealing to me, the idea of being loyal to the system, not suggesting any revolutionary changes in the system. Neither Ibn Ezra nor Rushbaum ever suggested any kind of changes, revolutionary or not, in the system from a practical law point of view. But from an intellectual perspective of reading the biblical text, they were willing to entertain and to pass on to you and me interpretations that go against the grain of the system in a very, Serious way, and curiously, Rashbam, who is the greater Talmud scholar of the two of them, by far, Ibn Ezra was not a great Talmud scholar. But Rashbam, who was the greater Talmud scholar uh, of the uh, of the two of them, was more revolutionary in offering uh, interpretations of biblical texts that didn't go along with halacha than Ibn Ezra, and he didn't think that it was terrible to interpret a biblical text in a way that went against halacha without starting a religious movement that would be uh, advocating the, uh, the abandonment of various laws. Yes. The brothers of whom? I think that my understanding is that they were wrong. Uh, my understanding of halacha is that they should have gone in, but uh, I, I, I imagine that uh, maybe they received some other advice from someone, but my my reading of the law suggests that they should have gone in. Huh. Okay, yes. Interpreting the text against the halakha, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yes. You know, three years ago... I uh, taught here at Drisha uh, at Winter Week, I tried a little bit to, uh, to deal with that, uh, that issue. I don't think that I can answer, answer that question in less than a couple of hours, except, but, uh, except to say that it's a great question and that it shows you, as you hinted, the greatness of the rabbis who were willing to... uh, when they saw that what the Jewish people required was that the reading of the text be different uh, than it had been before, they were willing to read the text differently from the way that it was read before. And is it possible that the nature of marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives had changed between the time of Moses and the time of the Talmudic rabbis. I definitely know that the nature of marriage has changed between the time of Moses and our time. Uh, and that was it possible that uh, that back in okay, I'll go off on this tangent a little bit because I think there's some interest in this uh, in this tangent. There is this uh, a great old Greek play entitled the the Antigone the the Antigone is a play that describes a strong-willed woman of principle who decides to there's a law that's made uh, her her brother had been a rebel against the king and she's from the royal family he was he was from the royal family and a law was made that his body should be left outside uh, to be eaten by the buzzards. And he should not be, and he should not be buried. And Antigone went, and she buried her brother's uh, body, knowing that the penalty for doing so was the death penalty. And uh, she eventually dies at the end of the play. Although the king doesn't want to, he really, he's so conflicted. He doesn't want to kill her. He really likes her, but she broke the law, and. It's a fascinating play because some law and order people have read it over history and have thought that the king was right in what he did. And most people, at least most people in the 20th or 21st century who read the Antigone, come to the conclusion that, of course, Antigone is our our hero. She did what it is that a human being should do. Towards the end of the play, Antigone is giving her soliloquy where, where she explains why she did it. And she said... I would never have done something like this for a husband because if you lose a husband, you can always find another one. But for a brother, especially now my parents are dead, I'm never going to have the opportunity of having another brother. For a brother I felt that you had to do something like this. I remember the first time that I read this that I said... uh, Zibis meshuge, you know this is nothing this kind of but but the culture in which the relationship that I have with my sister is stronger than the relationship that I have with my wife was probably extremely common in the ancient world. and when Abraham, there are some scholars who said that when avraham Avinu called his uh, his wife his sister. It was a way of saying, you know, I don't just think of you as a wife. I think of you as more of a than a wife. That that blood is is thicker than marriage. That I am I'm relating to you as my sister. That's a great compliment that that, that he has done because uh, because my sister and I share genes. We you know we we have uh, we have something really in common with each other. My wife and I don't share any genes. We're we're uh, we're unrelated people. We're we're uh, we're strangers. Uh, uh, so to speak, and it is possible that in ancient society there was a feeling like that, and it's possible that 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 when the nature of marriage had changed, the rabbis felt that to turn to somebody and say you can go to your sister's funeral, but you can't go to your wife's funeral, that 1800 years ago when they considered that they said that's absurd. We can't tell a kohen that he can go to his uh, he can go to his sister's funeral and can't go to his wife's funeral. And while it may have made sense, this is one theory, speculative theory, about how the rabbis allowed themselves to make this kind of change, if that's what they're doing. They're, one theory of halakha will say the rabbis always had a tradition that even though the words sound like they are saying that he shouldn't shouldn't go to his wife's uh, funeral, that isn't what the words ever meant. I'm less comfortable with that kind of approach. I'm more comfortable with saying that the rabbis allowed themselves to be legislators when it was called for, and it might be because of the change in the nature of the relationship between husbands and wives.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think
0: that by uh, when my 29th anniversary comes along very soon, I don't think I'll share that with my wife. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think that in the days when polygamy was permitted, and even although I am pretty convinced that. As, as early as 2,000 years ago, polygamy was rare in Jewish circles, but it was permitted. The entire nature of a relationship between a man and a woman is seriously affected by the fact that the woman knows that the husband can go and take another wife. And, uh, it, you know, the, this idea, you know, you know, we like to quote that verse from Adam and Eve, Davak the Ishto that's why a man uh, leaves the home of his parents and he goes and he cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. But one of the, uh, one of the commentators, I'm trying to remember, was it Rashi? Or, one of the ancient commentators says that means, and they will produce a new human being. But it doesn't mean that they, the two of them become one flesh. But they will come together and they will produce new human beings. But that's what the words, Now, in our society, where, thank God, we do not have polygamy, and where, thank God, we've created relationships where husbands and wives uh, see each other as being a a unit that functions together, and a, uh, a, a unit that is... Uh, uh, difficult to uh, to break and that uh, cannot be compromised in any uh, uh, in any way with another uh, another person. That that creates a different understanding of marriage than what I think was the understanding of marriage in uh, in old biblical times. I don't think that they had the same understanding of marriage. You were going to go back there. Sorry. Oh. Yes. Please. Yes, please. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Oh, the bitter herbs? (laughs) Yes. Except the Gemara, I agree with you, but the Gemara says, what's Maror? They say Chazeret. The Gemara says that that's what you should do, and then they say, what? Yes, right, right. Okay, so. Often on our seder plates today, we, we put some uh, romaine lettuce and we put some horseradish, uh, horseradish root. But curiously, you know, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, he's suggesting that when you come to the mitzvah of Maror, you should be eating the romaine lettuce and not the horseradish for the mitzvah of uh, Maror. My wife rolls her eyes at this every year when we do it. She says, what in the fun. Uh, and I understand where she's coming from. Um. Yes. Yes. Um. I I really you know I'd love to answer that question, but I think they'll have to invite me back to Winter Week another time to have another nine hours at a kick of the can uh, at uh, at that. But it, it is it is a crucial question not to dismiss it without any kind of, uh, without any kind of answer. There is a... Uh, I think that there was a natural process of changes going on in uh, within halakha that was, uh, uh, that worked really well including some various uh, radical changes that went on. As recently as about 400 years ago when the rabbis like uh, came up with the idea that you could own chametz on Pesach and sell it. In quotation marks, that's a very recent innovation. And scholars who have written about it have suggested that it developed because Jews in Poland, many Jews in Poland, made their living. Anybody get know how they made their living in breweries? And you can't run a brewery without get and get rid of all your chametz, uh when Pesach came, came along, so the rabbis, so the these religious Jews who were very serious about their observance, went to their rabbis and they said to them, you know, what are we going to do about this? Uh, what are we going to do about this problem? They came up with this uh, this uh, subterfuge called Mechirat chametz and if you look. It is so easy to construct a case from the classical Mishnaic and Talmudic sources that say that it is impossible and unthinkable to sell your hametz. Uh And still, it happened, because it was a natural process within the, uh, within the community. Uh, it was people who came to the rabbis and said, you know, we're not rebelling against rabbinic authority, but you've got to help us. Uh, we, we have to figure out a way to uh, to be able to be in this line of work it is a lucrative line of work the community probably wanted <laughs> the rabbinic authorities probably wanted to choose to be involved in the brewery uh, business and so what it I think that halakha ha, always had built into it the system for dealing with problems like this through creative kinds of interpretation the uh, I think that uh, tensions arose in the modern world where often the uh, the attempts to change were based on a rebellion against the authority system of the system also and this, you know the breakdown of traditional society, the openness of society, the fact that secular models presented themselves to Jews, the fact that Jews, beginning a couple of hundred years ago, realized correctly that they didn't need the rabbis for all of the things that you had previously needed the rabbis for. I think that Judaism has not done the best job of trying to deal with that kind of uh, with that kind of open uh, open structure, and that is why, uh, it has been argued and i think with some uh, sense that in uh, that the you know the the idea that's attributed to the first opponents of reformed judaism like the khatam sofer and rabbi akiva Eger, chadash asur min uh anything new is forbidden by the torah at any time it's a uh, it's actually a play on a rabbinic line chadash means the chadash in, in that rabbinic line means the new crops of the year, you're supposed to wait until the 16th of Nisan and the day of the offering of the Omer sacrifices that you're not supposed to uh, eat the new wheat of the year. The pizza shop that's around the corner from my house in Toronto says on it, Yashan flour, meaning you don't have to worry. We don't use any of the flour that has grown in the new crop before the 16th day of, uh, of, of Nisan, or before the 17th day of Nisan. And I guess they wait till Pesach is over until they serve it at the pizza place that's around the, uh, that's around the corner from me. So the original meaning of that line is, Chadash asur minatorah bechol makom, the prohibition against Chadash applies even in Toronto, even in Manhattan, uh, and, uh, and it's a Torah... Prohibition. But then it was turned. It's a good, it's a fun, it's a cute pun saying that anything new, any innovation is forbidden from the Torah at any time. I don't think that Rashi would have really liked that kind of uh, line. But on the other hand, he didn't live in a period of the breakdown of of the authority of traditional Jewish society. And so I think that the Jewish community is still trying to figure out how you deal with this breakdown of the, you know, when you have people, uh, as I said before, that all of us who choose to follow rabbinic authority are choosing to follow rabbinic authority. We have a, a... the reason that I ask uh, shywas of my rabbi is uh, not because anybody's holding a gun to my head to do so, but I have chosen to see myself as part of the system and that I have chosen a set of authority figures that I am going to go to, but the set of authority figures that I use might not be the same as... Uh, I also think that it was so unusual before the rise of the Hasidic movement to find to find that there were two ways of Jews doing it, whatever it is, in the same city, was almost unheard of in Jewish history. You know, if you lived in Tua uh, with Rashi, there was one way of doing it. It was the Jewish way of doing it. There weren't different min hagin the idea. You know, I remember the rabbi of the synagogue, I go to in Toronto once just really schmoozing with him and he said to me that he would really uh, he'd really like to have a uh, a nusach of Hebrew pronunciation that was the accepted nusach for the synagogue that to have all of the uh, all of the ba'alei tefillah all of the chazanim all, all, all of the prayer leaders pronounce Hebrew in the same uniform way and I, I rolled my eyes when he, he said that because I know, I know the halachic text and I know that it makes perfect sense what he's saying but I said, do you really want to have in our neighborhood here a synagogue for the people with the Hungarian pronunciation and a synagogue for the people with the Lithuanian pronunciation and a sy- another synagogue for the Polishers and then a synagogue for the people like me who started pronouncing Hebrew my, my, my late father uh, in the 1950s, when I was a, a baby, he decided that he was going to switch over, and he started pronouncing Hebrew in the uh, in the modern Israeli uh, Israeli way. It's the only one that the only system that I've ever learned. I, I try every once in a while to fake an Ashkenazic uh, pronunciation of Hebrew, and I'm incapable uh, of doing it, despite years in yeshiva. I still can't do it, and they laugh at me when I try when, when I try to do it. I said, "Do you really want something like that?" To-? But the classical sources that were written on the subject would suggest that the idea of having in a city, even in a city, more than one pronunciation of Hebrew is unheard of. There, you know, there should be local custom, and the local custom. So I think that Judaism is still dealing with that question of how to deal with this open society kind of uh, setup. Yes? Please. Yes? Okay, I would argue. You know, I've heard that a lot, and I've heard that uh, that line made by uh, proponents of Jewish uh, diversity and pluralism and uh, things of this nature, which I'm not against. I'm not against diversity, but historically speaking, I would agree with you. And I think it's cute that you said around the year zero. I I'd like to say that also around the. There, we all know that there is no year zero. There was one, one, uh, uh, one BCE followed by one CE, but I around the year zero there was a lot of diversity that is true but between I would say between around the year 80 and the rise of the Hasidic movement there was no diversity in Jewish communities with the possible exception of the places where the Karaites uh, there were two ways of doing it the way the rabbinites said to do it and the way the Karaites said uh, to do it. The occasionally you could find in Fostat, in Egypt, where the Rambam lived, that there was a Karaite community and a uh, Rabbinite community that were fighting with each other. But in most places where the Jews lived, for about 1700 years, I would say that there was one way of doing it in town. And that if you didn't like the synagogue that you were going to, well, you know, we all have the option today, you don't like the synagogue, you're going to, there's so many options of rabbis who are going to have approach, approaches that are stricter or more lenient. We all know that, and all the rabbis know that too, that if, uh, if you don't like it, you're going to choose to go to a different synagogue of a different type. And I would argue, in my uh, global sweep of history, that before... For the 1,700 years or so before the rise of the Hasidic movement, this was not the pattern for, uh, for Jewish communities. But you're right, there was a period. The days of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Bythusians. Yes, there was that period. And then Judaism, after the destruction of the Temple... Uh Sadducees fell off the face of the earth. The Essenes fell off the face of the earth. Various other groups fell off the face of the earth. And you do not find this idea of Jewish communities that are doing things in two different ways at the at the same time until we have Hasidic that are opening up as alternatives to the Mitnagdic community within the same town. There are two shuls. You don't like the way the Mitnagdim do it? You can go to the Hasidic, uh, to the Hasidic Synagogue. Okay, I'll take uh, just, okay, two, two more comments and then I want move on a little. Yes. I have and I have part of an answer now and I really would like to have more of an answer I
1: feel also frustrated that used to think and now I think it's different it is just such a good of why we should always continue to
0: learn, that's right. That's right. Very good. And you know, the, the the point that I mentioned about how I uh, always hesitate when I open up the book that I wrote in 1985 because I'm scared that I don't agree with anything that I thought in 1985. It's, it's a scary thing. Yeah, but that's fine. Uh, you know, if you if you can go over your work, Rashi incidentally. You know, there's so many wonderful things about Rashi. But one of the things about Rashi is that he edited his works all through his life. That he changed his works all through his life. We have evidence. There are a couple of thought of the Gemara where we have found multiple copies of Rashi's commentary on it written at different levels you know scholars have found that. recently it sounds like it's a break uh, for the uh, for the younger group and I'm, I'd like to try to get to a break for us uh, soon too Interesting theory. I think I see that argument uh, uh, surfacing in Jewish history later than the rabbinic exegesis that, uh, that suggests uh, that the... I, I think that in times they still felt that, they, that there was a fair amount of certainty about who were the Uh, uh Let's just see two more texts here about the uh, observance of uh, Passover. Uh, My old professor Nachum Sarna at the top of page 3 here on the handout text number 7. This one does not come with a Hebrew original because it was written in English. Uh, Sarna uh, suggests referred originally to the kind of pungent condiment with which pastoral nomads habitually season their meals of roasted flesh. So here's another suggestion. What, what are, what are the merorim for? Are they there because that's the, how Egyptians uh, had meals? Is that how pastoral nomads had, uh, had meals? Uh, all of these possible uh, uh, attempts at understanding it. And finally, a comment here of Chizkuni, calls im umar Why do you eat the korban Pesach with bitter herbs? Chizkuni, again, 13th-14th century uh, Provence, uh, southern France. All of this is done in a degrading manner. They eat it with something foul-tasting and bitter. You know, I think this is an Ashkenazi here who, 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 who you know, hasn't realized that it is nice to have roast meat with something, uh, with something that has a little bit of food with it has a little bit of sharpness to it. I assume, I haven't done uh, all that careful study of how they ate meat in Provence in the 13th and 14th century, but he thought, oh, what a disgusting thing to, do, <laughs> to eat roast meat together with something that has some bitterness to it, so must be done. This goes back with the theory that he had before, that since the Egyptians worshipped lambs, the ceremony should be conducted in a thicket-to-the-Egyptians kind of way, and that would be the uh, best way of proving that we have freedom from their way of looking at the world. Yes? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it sounds, uh, it sounds like something that uh, I could imagine some uh, old-time uh, people, uh, some people who came from, uh, from Eastern Europe who felt, you know, that just, you know, you shouldn't enjoy life too much, <laughs> yes, it has to be something wrong. Okay, we'll take a five or ten minute break and we'll uh, reassemble here and move on at that point. <laughs> Okay. Whenever people are uh, ready, we'll uh, get started again. As uh, those of you who've been here all week have noticed, every day I prepared more text that, uh, th- than we were able to get to. Can I
1: have the text a from yesterday and stuff if I want it
0: later. Uh, yes, I, I have one copy of, uh, of yesterday and the day before in my bag. Here, I'll give it to you afterwards. Sure, sure. Uh, and I think there might be more in the office if anybody needs it. Um, I think that I had forgotten. That uh, groups that come to Drisha are intelligent people who like to uh, participate, and I thought that you know, I thought that I'd be lecturing, and so you had to have enough. Uh, you know, I'm delighted to have a uh, a strongly participatory uh, group like this, and it's a uh, fun way of teaching. So. In this long ha- series of handouts that I uh, gave out here, I think that we are going to skip the next section which talked about the rules rules related to the eating of blood, and we are going to skip to the last section of the handout, beginning on page 8 of the handout, rules relating to basak the halal, the eating of meat and milk together. Page 8 in the handout, text number 24. The well-known biblical verse. Reishit Bikure admatcha tavi bet Adonai Elohecha. Lo tevashel gedi bachalei v'imo. Bring the first fruits of your land to the temple of the Lord your God. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. We're on the top of page 8 number 24. We didn't do everything in between. We skipped a few things. <laughs> yes? <laughs> um, fine question. In Exodus chapter 12, the, uh, the text uses the word levashel in the sense of to boil. Uh, now, Bashal can also mean to cook. And in modern Hebrew, it more often means to cook than to boil. And you, say, you are right that uh, in modern Hebrew, we would say lahartiach uh, uh, for boiling. But in the Bible, bashal can, mean, uh, can either, mean either one. And I would have no objection if the text read, uh, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Uh, the, that would also be a fine, uh, fine translation. The, uh, as Rashi points out a famous comment of uh, of Rashi text number 25 no tevashel gedi azhara lubasar bechalav vshalosh pahamim kattu batorah echad l'akhila VaEchad l'hanaa v'achad l'isur bishul gedi kol vlad rach Bemashma, v'af ega v'cheves v'chalev imo Pratlo loof sh'ein lo chalev eim sh'ein yisuro v'na Torah Midivrei s'ofrim do not boil a kid. This is the Rashi 25 in English. This is the Torah's warning against mixtures of meat and milk. It is written three times in the Torah. That line, that precise line, Lo tevashel gedi vimo, That precise line appears three times in the Torah. Uh, once in Exodus 23, once in Exodus 34, and once in the book of Deuteronomy. And why is it there three times? Rashi says, quoting the Gemara, uh, it is written three times in the Torah, once to outlaw eating such a mixture, once to outlaw deriving benefit from such a mixture, and once to outlaw cooking such a mixture. How much of this is
1: Gemara, which is Rashi's original? Uh,
0: in general... Almost all of Rashi's commentary on the Torah is the direct quotation. I would say somewhere between 95 and 98% of the words in Rashi's commentary on the Torah are direct quotation from Talmudic or Midrashic sources. And very little of it is his own writing. But there's a... uh, Rashi's genius was in editing. Was in, in knowing what to choose among the uh, among the sources, but it is so rare that he actually says something uh, that is uh, his original explanation. And he uh, so here is an example of uh, where uh, uh, where Rashi is simply quoting the Talmudic text uh, verbatim. I didn't translate uh, the end of the Rashi where he explains that really when it says a kid doesn't just mean a baby goat and when it says uh, its mother it doesn't just mean its mother and that's where we get the rule of uh, meat and milk and we do not uh, eat meat and milk we do not derive benefit from such a mixture so I know I don't own any pets, but I know religious Jews who own pets and who are very uh, careful not to uh, have a have pet food that has both meat and milk in it, because they're deriving benefit from feeding their pets uh, pet food that has basar bechalav in it, and it is even forbidden to cook such a mixture without deriving any uh, benefit from the mixture or. I had, a, I had a friend many years ago uh, who went and studied uh, to be a uh, chef, and then he became religious. And when he became religious, he told me that you know he was he he, he had gone to you know Cordon Bleu. Something you know he was really an expert chef, and he had, he asked Ashila, "Am I allowed to uh, to work?" for a uh, non-kosher uh, fancy uh, fancy restaurant and the rabbi told him he was allowed to do it as long as he never cooked meat and milk. He can cook, uh, he, can, he can make uh, bacon-based uh, uh, dishes without any uh, difficulty. He can cook ham. As long as he doesn't eat eat it. There was, uh, there's, no, there's nothing forbidden according to halacha to boil, to cook ham there's nothing uh, forbidden according to halacha to derive benefit from ham. You can sell uh, you can sell ham for a living if you are a uh, if you are a religious Jew. The uh, the owner of uh, this is not ham, but it's not kosher meat. the The owner of the biggest halal uh, meat company in Canada is a religious Jew who is a friend of mine. This is <laughs> not kosher meat, but he. He's uh, really cornered the market on halal meat in uh, in Canada. Uh, he he doesn't make all that many public appearances as the owner of the company. He has found that it's good to have some frontmen uh, for him in this uh, uh, in this business who who look more of the part of uh, halal than my friend David does. Uh, but. Basar B'chalav, you know, it's this really interesting halachic category that not only are you not allowed to eat it, and not only are you not... There are a few things in halacha that you're not allowed to have benefit from, like hametz on Pesach. If you, uh, if you own a, uh, a bakery or a store, a uh, the, uh, the supermarket, you're not allowed to sell hametz on, uh, on Pesach, even to a non-Jew. You are allowed to sell ham on Pesach to a non-Jew if you are so inclined to make your living uh, living that way and you're never allowed to sell Basar B'chalav you're not allowed to derive any benefit from uh, Basar B'chalav and you aren't even allowed to cook it Uh, so the Bible provides nothing approaching a reason for Basar B'chalav and I assume that for uh, most or all of the people in, our, uh, in the room right now, Basar Bechalav plays a role in our uh, lives. The rules about Basar Bechalav play a role in our lives. So I thought it might be fun to finish off this, uh, uh, my section of this uh, winter week by doing some careful analysis of some of the explanations that have been offered over the years for Basar Bechalav. Yes, please. So it's in the Torah. So, you know, on the oldest... uh... Oh, when did the interpretation... Ah, so this is an interesting uh, question. Uh, We know what the Torah says, and then we know what the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, say, but there's a gap of... uh, There's a gap of about a thousand years or more between the time of the Torah what do we know about the history of interpretation between the days of the Torah and the days of the Mishnah? And the answer is zero. Nothing. We know nothing. We know nothing about how these rules were interpreted in uh, b- before the days of the Mishnah. You know, we have the principle that the Mishnah was the first writing down of the oral Torah, meaning that uh, before that, it felt that rabbinic traditions should not be written down. They should remain oral. And so, since... We don't know anything about the the methods of interpretation beforehand. To the best of my knowledge, Talmudic literature never gets into the question of what the reason is behind this. Uh, it talks about basar b'chalab, it talks about meat and milk at great length, but never asking any question about what the, uh, what the rationale is behind it. And it is only once it became... It's only after, in the middle of the Middle Ages, is when uh, some of my friends accused me of uh, really wishing that I lived in the 12th century, and th- th- there is some truth to it. I do think that, intellectually speaking, there were some fascinating things going on in the 12th century in Judaism, both in Ashkenazic and in Sephardic uh, circles. People like Rashbam, like Ibn Ezra, and like, uh, uh, and, and like Rambam, that's... That's the 12th century. That's where I think some of the great thinkers of, uh, of Judaism uh, came from. and it w- That was the heyday of the beginning of Tom Mayamid's vote, of trying to explain the reasons for the commandments, was in the 12th century. One day, maybe I'll give a about what was special about the 12th century, but that's not, the, not, not today's uh, lecture. Yes. Yeah. I have heard many rabbis make that uh, kind of uh, claim, and I I have nothing against that kind of claim, but that's, uh, it doesn't really explain, that's the whole theme that I've been trying to explore, explanations that try to get down to the nitty-gritty of the details of the law and say, well, why is the law precisely the way that it is? As opposed to the kinds of explanations that are just explanations of the system. That if you are part of the system, you know, it will click for you and you'll feel good and you're part of the Jewish people and you'll be rewarded by God and you'll have a spiritual life and you will live... uh, uh, through a combination of autonomy and heteronomy not just making decisions on your own but allowing somebody else to help you with this those are all the general rationales for observing the mitzvot that it will do something good to you to not see yourself as being wholly autonomous but of thinking of yourself as being Fine, I have nothing against all those explanations but here I want to be looking at the attempts to explain the specific details here and we will find some curious attempts to explain all of these, uh, all of these details. Uh, Rashbam, I'll just read it in English. Uh, those of you who wish can look at the uh, at, at the Hebrew original. You shall not boil or cook a kid in its mother's milk. Pardon me. Uh, the the uh, apostrophe disappeared there. Oh no, th- th- it didn't disappear there. I'm sorry. It's spelled correctly <laughs> in its <mother's laughs> I'm sorry Goats generally give birth to two kids at the same time. It was customary then. Incidentally, Rashbam owned goats. And so he knows better than I do what it is that he is talking about. There is a uh, great story about Rashbam and his brother. Rashbam's uh, brother was Rabbeinu Tam and uh, Many of the comments of the Tosfot, the commentary and the Gemara, are filled with arguments between these two brothers, duking it out about the meaning of a Talmudic uh, passage. There are some great stories about these two brothers that uh, show some uh, uh, personal kind of interactions uh, between them. The most famous story is that Rashbam was once walking through the marketplace in, uh, in France and he saw a scantily clad woman and he decided that, it, that a religious Jew should not be looking at this scantily clad woman and he started walking around like this without his uh, uh, without looking up because he didn't want to look at the scantily clad woman and he bumped into a horse and he got pushed down into the mud and got all filthy and his brother, Rav wrote this little ditty, uh, you know, Shmuel Suslefan. He goes on for a few lines. You've know, you got to watch. You've got to have some seichel, brother Shmuel. You know, you're walking through the market. There, there are horses there. you got to stay out of the So you, you see this little uh, jocular uh, relationship between these brothers. There's another story that once upon a time... Uh, it seems that the, the Rashbam Rabbeinu Tam family had a little bit of money and they had some, a number of people working for them, uh, including they had various non Jews who were responsible for milking the goats. Now, these days, uh, some people still observe the rules today of Khalid Yisrael, of uh, buying only Jews, uh, only uh, milk that is milked by a Jew or in the presence of a Jew, but many people today follow the position that says that the uh, the government here in the state of New York would bring down the force of the law on anybody who tried to sell something as cow's milk that was actually pig's milk. And so you don't have to worry about it. You don't really have to have a Jew there watching the milking. There's a, a dispute between modern Orthodox and Haredi Orthodox uh, circles uh, today is the issue of chalav uh, of Yisrael. Although Rav Moshe Feinstein, the original tshuva that he wrote on the, uh, on the subject, he permitted it. So there's this uh, story that Rashbam I always like this story because you see Rashbam liked his his daughter and stuck up for his daughter. Rashbam sent his daughter to supervise the milking, to stand over the non-Jews as they milked the goats. And she arrived a little bit late. And the milking had begun before Rashbam's daughter showed up there and Rashbam declared that the milk was kosher uh... despite the fact that there had been five or ten minutes of milking before his daughter got there and his brother got mad at him Rabbeinu Tam got mad at him and said you can't permit the consumption of that uh, that milk so uncle Yaakov uh, Rabbeinu Yaakov Tam did not like what Rashbam's daughter had done but Rashbam stuck up for his daughter and says, no it's not such a big deal she got there the the non-Jew knew that she was coming he certainly would not have uh, had the chutzpah to mix in any uh, pig's milk into this, into the goat's milk, and so we can trust the kashrut of uh, of this. So we have stories about the goats in the uh, in the uh, descendants of Rashi family, and I haven't checked into this. Anybody know goats better than I do? No, so I can say anything that I want. Uh, <laughs> Rashbam says, goats generally give birth to two kids at the same time. It was customary then to slaughter one of the two. And since goats produce much milk, as it says, goat's milk will suffice for your food and the food of your household, in the book of Proverbs, it was common custom to boil the kid in his mother's milk. The text describes the most likely occurrence, or in Hebrew, lefi hahove diber hakatu, the Talmudic phrase, hove, in that phrase, does not mean tense means the most likely occurrence in other words the Torah wished to forbid the consumption of meat and milk and why did it choose the example of uh, a goat and its uh, and its mother's milk because goats are usually produced in multiple births and so there's a there's one that can be kept for milking and the other one can be slaughtered it's a a, uh, uh, an expendable commodity one of the two uh, one of the two goats that is born can be can be slaughtered and goats have a lot of milk and so that's why the torah took this example and now we have his explanation of the reason for the mitzvah, it is disgraceful and voracious and gluttonous to consume the mother's milk together with its young. It's disgusting. It's fit. It's something that you don't do. The law is comparable to it and its young and to letting the mother go. The mitzvah that we talked about on Monday, the mitzvah of letting the mother bird go and not taking both the mother and her young. There's also a rule that says, o tovet bano You are not allowed to slaughter a mother and her baby, uh, her, you know the mother cow and the calf on the same day. It's just too cruel to do things like that. And it's just too cruel to take a goat and boil it in its mother's milk. And it's just too cruel when you come across a, uh, a bird's nest to take both the mother bird and the chicks. And since so many animals were consumed during the pilgrim holidays, the Torah in this section concerning the pilgrim holidays warned that one should neither boil a kid in its mother's milk, nor eat such a mixture. And the same rule applies to all meat and milk. Okay, we have a uh, a valiant effort to provide a uh, a rationale for a mitzvah that seems so strange. The suggestion that it is... uh, It's one of these mitzvot that are trying to teach us to be more uh, compassionate people, and that if you get people walking around uh, killing a mother cow and a baby cow on the same day, or boiling a kid in its mother's milk those are the kinds of behavior that would tend to inculcate into my personality a, uh, a not very positive uh, approach to compassion, a negative approach to compassion. Rushbaum says further on the next page, uh, in his commentary on the verse about Letting the mother go before taking the birds in the nest. I've already offered 27. I've already offered this explanation, which is both in conformance with the way of the world and also appropriate for rebutting the heretics concerning boiling a kid in its mother's milk or slaughtering it and its young. This behavior, either taking the mother and the young together or slaughtering them together or cooking them together, is forbidden because it appears cruel and gluttonous. Now, Explanation being offered again, but uh Rashbaum says that his explanation is good The Chuvat It's appropriate for rebutting the heretics. The Minim. Who are the Minim?
1: Your fellow Jews,
0: Often in rabbinic texts, that is the meaning of minim, but that is not the meaning of the meaning of minim here in this text. Anybody? Uh, pardon me. Christians. Here is an appropriate. I'm going to tell you this, but I can tell you that it's wrong. There's this really cute folk etymology about the word min mem yud nun that claims that it is Rachei Tevot, it stands for three Hebrew words, Ma'amin Yeshu Notsri, a believer in Jesus. Of, as I said, that's a folk etymology, it is not the real derivation of the word mean, but it might help you remember that in some rabbinic texts, they use the word mean for, to mean Christian. So what, what, what do the Christians have to do uh, with, with this? Uh, Any suggestions why he is suggesting? Rashbam, it has sometimes been argued that Rashbam saw one of his goals in writing his biblical commentaries, providing us with a primer, providing us with a useful book uh, to use when you get into arguments with Christians on the streets of northern France or wherever it is that you are getting into an argument with a Christian. Uh, And he says here... And I'm, I'm going to quote this in the name of Professor Elazar Tuitu of bar University, who was the first to pointed this out very well. If you look at text 26, Rashbam doesn't mention anywhere that he is offering that explanation as an anti-Christian argument. The words anti-Christian, chuvadaminim, do not appear in text 26. Then in 27 he says to you, That's his commentary on Exodus. And then in Dvarim, he said, I already offered you back in Exodus a commentary that is meant as refutation of a uh, Christian claim, which Professor Tweetu so correctly points out means that Rashbam does not identify all of his anti-Christian comments as being anti-Christian. Just bimikret. By the way, he told us in Deuteronomy that what he had said back in Exodus was an anti-Christian comment. but." if we'd never read the commentary on Deuteronomy, wouldn't, we wouldn't have realized that. And so, Sweetu claims that there are a lot of comments in Rashbam that are meant as refutation of Christians without, uh, uh, without being identified. Um, okay. Why would this be at all relevant to discussions between Jews and Christians? Any suggestion? Why... This might have come up in the please. Excellent.
1: Excellent. We're doing it just because it's
0: Excellent. A common Christian claim in medieval Christian arguments against Judaism is that, uh, you know, I, I, t- I think I mentioned this yesterday, the Christians often accuse the Jews of being literalists, of not having a soul, not realizing the various laws in the Torah that were meant to be interpreted metaphorically and allegorically, uh, have to be interpreted metaphorically and allegorically, and that's what the Christians were claiming. The Jews look at these laws and they think that it should be taken literally. And they just don't understand. There was common Christian argument against Jews. I can find you numerous Christian, ar- uh, Christian thinkers, both in the 12th century and before the 12th century, saying this about Jews. And then the Jews come along and say, No, the rule makes sense. And, curiously, the rule makes sense because it is meant to inculcate compassion, which is something that, you know, Christians might often be claiming that the... Uh, actually, to tell you the truth, you find this more in modern text than in 12th century text. But you can find a little bit of it in 12th century text that the Old Testament is the te- is the testament of law and justice and harshness, and that compassion is to be found in the New Testament and it is to be found in Christianity. And so Rashbam, like, is doing two things at the same time. He's refuting the Christian claim that the law is meaningless by saying that it has meaning. And he is also saying, we Jews know about compassion, and we have laws that are meant to make us compassionate also. Yes? Right. 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 That's... Yes. A reasonable interpretation of a passage in Matthew uh, that uh, you know where Jesus says that not one jot or one tittle of this law uh, of this uh, law shall be uh, abolished until all is fulfilled or something like that. And then some Christians say, well, once he once he died and he was crucified and he was resurrected and he rose to heaven, then all has been fulfilled and. Uh, those of us I look out on this world, and I don't really think that all has been fulfilled. But I guess that's that's why I'm not a Christian, because I don't think that all has been. Uh, fu- I think that we are living in an unredeemed uh, world that still re- uh, requires quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of redemption. Uh, Pardon me. Yes, yes, right. So, if it's left for the second coming, it hasn't been all fulfilled. The you know the uh, the. Having having it both ways is, has been the standard Jewish argument against uh, Christianity. That you know, either it's all fulfilled or it isn't all fulfilled. And uh, uh, personally, I think that's a pretty strong argument. But I didn't come here to uh, disprove Christianity. But that's uh, that's the way I feel uh, about standard traditional uh, Christianity. Um, Ramban's comment 28 the meaning of for you are a holy people to the Lord your God should be seen as connected to the next phrase do not boil a kid in its mother's milk for such a mixture is not a disgusting food don't think that there's anything wrong with eating meat and milk it was forbidden for us only so that we might be holy in our eating alternatively it was forbidden so that we would be holy in the sense that we would not be a cruel nation. People who have no mercy, people who milk a cow, extract her milk, and boil her child in that milk. Again, this kind of uh, uh, same, same explanation that there's a lack of compassion that's involved in doing things of this nature. Although it is true, that any meat and milk that have been cooked together are included in this prohibition which seems to go against this uh, this, uh, this compassionate uh, explanation because if it's okay, if I had some milk uh, in my coffee this morning and if I eat some meat later today, well, uh, in what way does it become less compassionate if I would have them uh, uh, together I, I, as long as I uh, didn't specifically take it from the mother and from, uh, and from the especially if I have uh, the cow's milk and lamb or something uh, something like this uh, cooked together. And I know that a cow could not have been the mother of the, uh, uh, of the lamb. Uh, so he knows that it breaks down. For every lactating animal may be called a mother, and every suckling may be called a kid. All of them involve cruelty. It just says, There's some cruelty in all of it without really explaining. So this, I think this is a very common style of explanation. I'm not... Uh, I'm not dismissing this explanation by any means but I am saying that it seems kind of uh, seems kind of limited yes right and in uh, very good the uh, restriction on eating mil, uh, milk and poultry is seen in the rabbinic literature as being a rabbinic innovation and is not being forbidden from the torah and there is even one rabbi in the 2nd century named rabbi yoseh HaGalili who claimed that eating uh, milk and poultry was permitted and did not find it uh, did not find it forbidden um, okay um, Par Yosi Ha Yes. you'll see the Galilean and it seems that, that it might have been the custom in the Gal, uh, Galilee. Some scholars have argued that in the Galileo they had a uh, in the Galilee they had a more lenient position on this issue. Yes. I, I don't I don't think that that's accurate uh, but I don't know
1: uh-huh uh-huh
0: uh-huh where I'm sorry uh-huh. cooling what Okay, I'll take a look later. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> only with poultry. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, uh, Tip number 29 at the top of page 10. I'll read it in English. Even Ezra's comments. The rabbis passed on the tradition that a Jew should not eat meat and milk. I will now explain know that the Torah generally speaks about the most common cases. For example, when it forbids eating an ostrich, it forbids, but, literally, the daughter of the ostrich. Now, why would the Torah write in this unusual manner and have the daughter serve as representative of all ostriches? You know, if you want to say that ostrich isn't kosher, why do you say, but, we find no precedent for this. Why Nothing else on this pattern in the Gemara, but know that ostrich flesh is very dry. It is very rare for anyone to eat that flesh, except the flesh of the young female ostrich, which has some moisture. The male young does not. I know nothing about ostrich flesh, and uh, if anybody wishes to argue with Ibn Ezra, I'll be happy to. uh, uh, But he claims that that ostrich is not the greatest delicacy around. And that people would be unlikely unlike, to so when the torah says don't eat the daughter of the ostrich it really means don't eat any ostrich but it cho- it's chose the daughter of the ostrich because that's the one that people might be likely to eat uh, when the torah gives an example the example might be to stand, it might stand for the entire species but it talks about that which is most likely to happen similarly no one likes to eat meat, milk and meat cooked together for it does not make a tasty meal. I think there might be people who would disagree with even Ezra uh, about this, uh, but uh, that's, that's his claim. Meat takes a long time to cook, and milk does not. So uh, of course, I know there are recipes that suggest you know that you add the milk late in the cooking, but anyways, he, he seems to think for whatever reason that milk and meat wasn't a big problem in antiquity, Did the Torah wished to forbid meat and milk, but most types of meat and milk people were avoiding eating anyways, except for it is still the custom today in Muslim country that no one eats lamb cooked in milk. That's what he claims. Since there is so much moisture in the lamb and also in the milk, it would be harmful to eat it together so no one does. But since goat meat is not moist, and since the young goat is warm, it is constantly cooked in milk. And so that's a, so the, the Torah wished to say, don't eat meat and milk together, but it knew that the one, the one mixture that people were likely to try to do is goat meat and milk. And it, even though it only uses those examples, you should just see it like the example of the daughter of the ostrich, which means don't eat ostrich. Yes, yeah, you were going to say something, please. No, it does not. Yes. Do not be surprised at what I say. uh, uh Ibn Ezra is writing his longer commentary on Exodus when he lived in northern France towards the end of his life, like in the 1150s or uh, 1160s. He's living in northern France. And notice that the surprise that he thinks might... He said, you might be surprised about what I'm saying. Do not be surprised at what I say, since people in these countries generally do not eat goat meat at all. I know people don't really like to eat goat meat uh, here in in, uh, northern France. In fact, though, all the doctors admit that there is no meat like it, and they even permit sick people to eat it, People do eat it in Spain, in North Africa, in Israel, in Iran, and Iraq. And uh, even Ezra, the world traveler, is sitting there writing his commentary there in northern France and says, I know that these French people have not quite figured out that goat meat is a good thing to eat, but everywhere else in the world people have figured out that it's a good thing to eat. And over there in Muslim countries they cook it with milk. Again, I'm no expert on the food habits in the 12th century. I have no reason to consider even Ezra to be a liar. But uh, I, on the other hand, I have no uh, reason to think that he might not have exaggerated the pattern a little bit in order to get it to the biblical verse more nicely. That's also uh, a, a possibility. Yes? Yes. Um, when we got married, we by the rabbi that married us, the rabbi gave me a book, Jewish
1: Customs for the Young Homemaker. Mm-hmm.
0: I would love to see uh, the. the
1: uh-huh. Yes, 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 yes.
0: Please. the The way that it looks, that it looks bad. Perhaps, perhaps it is a uh, a principle in this. Okay. I would like to suggest that we now take five or ten minutes to allow you to take a look at this Guide of the Perplexed, the next two sections, section 33 and and section 34, uh, texts in English because they were originally written in Judeo-Arabic. If you could put yourself into Chabrutah groups, we will reconvene in ten minutes and we will discuss Rambam's approach to meet and milk based on texts number 33 and 34 at the bottom of page 10. What's Rambam's theory about meat and milk together? And what do we learn from this about Rambam's theory in general about Ta'amea mitzvot, about finding uh, finding reasons for the commandments. Do commandments, do all the commandments have reasons or do they not have reasons? They do. Of course they have reasons. Uh, What about this one? Well, he's not really sure what the reason is. He knows that there is a reason. And he says in 33 that, uh, you know, it is, the, ge- the rabbis in the middle of 33, our rabbis generally do not think that such precepts have no cause whatever, pardon the double negative there, uh, but he say the rabbis think that such rules do have reasons, even the boiling of meat together, but sometimes we don't know them because of the, uh, why don't we know them, the third last line of 33, owing either to the deficiency of our knowledge or the weakness of our intellect. Because we don't have enough knowledge. Okay, so then we get to 34. And in 34, first of all, he has this kind of throwaway line in the beginning that uh, you become too full when you eat meat and milk together. And it's not a good thing to... Okay, so I guess people could agree or disagree with, uh, with that about whether... Uh, and we have mentioned the fact that Rambam does often provide health-related reasons for, uh, for some of the uh, food, food-related uh, laws, some of which are uh, unconvincing to a 21st century audience who has uh, a different understanding of health. Rambam was, had a state-of-the-art understanding of health for the 12th century, but it was, after all, the, uh, the 12th century. But then, what does he say in the continuation of 34? Does somebody want to try to summarize what does Rambam claim in the continuation of 634 here in uh, Guide 348? Please. Right. It's really... It's, it's such a nice text because Rambam is kind of opening himself up to us. He doesn't do all that often. Uh, he said, you know, I look at a law like this, and I think that a law like this must be a reaction to something that's going on in the pagan world. And I've spent a lot of time studying about the pagan world as much as I can in order to be able to understand the Torah better. We talked about this on Monday, the idea of if you understand the world from which the Torah came, if you'll pardon the scholarly phrase, if you understood the zitzim laban, the situation in life, you know, what was going on in the world in the days when the Torah was written, then you will understand the Torah better. He said, you know, when I look at a text like this, and I see it says, three times a year all of your males should appear before the Lord your God. Uh, and then it says when you come you should bring the first fruits to the Lord your God he said you know what it sounds like to me it sounds like to me that when the pagans used to make visits to their to the temples of, the, of their gods they used to boil a kid in its mother's milk and it's saying here you know like what the symposium before. It's somewhat structured on... The, the Seder is somewhat structured on the symposium and it's a polemic against it. The Jews were not the first people to bring the first fruits of their land to the temple of their God. The uh, the Jews were not the first people in the world to go and make pilgrim... pilgrimages to the temple of their God. These were things that were being done in antiquity. and it, And the Bible is saying in that... You should follow the standard pattern. You know, if there's a temple of the Lord your God, you shouldn't stay away from it. You should show up there every once in a while. And you should bring the first fruit to the temple of the Lord your God. But don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't do the disgusting thing that is done by the pagans when they have these pilgrim festivals. Um... Around 50 or 60 uh, years ago, well, maybe go back a little bit before that, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, a new language was discovered, a language called Ugaritic, which is Ugaritic, U-G-A-R-I-T-I-C. Ugarit is a culture that exists. Ugarit existed on the site of the modern city of Latakia, Syria, Lebanon of the world. Latakia once upon a time was called Ugarit. Ugarit was destroyed before the days of Moshe Rabenu, before the days of Moses. Ugarit was wiped out, and people digging in Latakia found a number of texts that are older than the Bible. And in these texts, they discovered, gee, this language, Ugaritic, is really close to Hebrew. And it is a Semitic language, and it is perhaps the Semitic language that we have the largest corpus of that is close to Hebrew. Moabite might actually be even closer to Hebrew than uh, than Ugaritic, but we hardly have anything written in Moabite. But we do have a number of documents written in Ugaritic, and we we have Ugaritic uh, legal texts, and we have Ugaritic poetry, and Uh, amazingly, Ugaritic poetry is written in the style that that we had always thought was unique to the poetry of the Hebrew Bible, the style called parallelism. Yisrael mim Yisra'im Beit Yaakov me'am lo'ez, when uh, Israel left Egypt, when the house of Jacob left a foreign place, haitai Yehuda l'kodshu, Yisrael Mamshalotav. Yehuda became his holy people, y- y- Yisrael became his uh, so uh, special one. So Some wag once suggested that if you want to become a biblical Hebrew poet. The first book that you had to buy was a thesaurus. Because the principle of biblical uh, Hebrew poetry is that you say something once and then you say it again in a slightly different way. Now, James Kugel, who I quoted uh, yesterday or the day before, has written a uh, book about uh, biblical Hebrew poetry in which he has argued, I think convincingly, that it's more than just repeating, that the, the relationship between the second stick of the line and the first stick of the line is not simply repeating. He has this whole theory about the, the, there's a kind of... Uh, uh, Increasing level always, in, or most of the time, in, uh, between the first uh, stick and the second stick of the repeated line. And amazingly, Ugaritic poetry is written in parallelism. And amazingly, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, if you find the word yom in stick one of a poetic line, you are extremely likely to find what word in stick two of the poetic line? Any guesses? If you find Yom, Dei pardon me? You find Lila. Very often. It's, you, know, you, you just you look at poetry in the first part. If you find, here I'll give you a harder one. If you find Yad in the first part of the line, you don't. it's not Regal that you n- normally find. It's not foot that you find in the second part. Uh, but, but Yad is almost always paired with, anybody want to guess, with what? No, that's a good guess. All of those are good guesses. It doesn't happen to be the right one, but those are all good guesses. Also a good guess. Yamin is the standard pair for the word Yad. If you find Yad in one half of the poetic line, you'll find Yamin, because most of us are righties, with apologies to any of the lefties... uh, who are uh, in the room right now and so for most of us when you say Yad yamin yamin, uh, yamin 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 pardon uh, and so the and in Ugaritic poetry believe it or not you know hundreds of years before Moshe Rabbeinu in Ugaritic they, the the uh, pair word that goes with Yom with is Lila we don't really know how to pronounce Ugaritic because it's written like Hebrew without uh, without vowels and so we we don't we have guesses of how to pronounce we have the, we have the consonants but we don't have so there's something that looks like yom and something that looks like lila that generally go together and there's something that looks like yad and something that looks like yamin that uh, that generally go together in poetic lines around sixty years ago cyrus gordon wrote an article where he was looking through one of these ugaritic texts and he Uh, he came to the conclusion that in Ugarit they used to have a first fruit festival and he said that they used to boil a kid in its mother's milk as part of the first fruit festival and he said Cyrus Gordon who was a great uh, scholar of Judaism not just a scholar of the Bible said Rambam was right that Rambam had the you know he just had this sense that when you see something that you can't understand in the Hebrew Bible, and it just looks weird, it is presumably uh, a polemic against the society in which the Israelites lived. And Cyrus Gordon said, Gee, take a look at the Seichel, the intelligence of Rambam, who, despite not having the best sources, in fact, he had some really lousy sources he did the best research possible about ancient paganism and the best book that he thought that he had found was a book called the Nabataean Agriculture which purported to discuss uh, to, to discuss uh, paganism in antiquity and it has been found that the Nabataean Agriculture is a medieval forgery and it has nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with uh, with antiquity poor rom you know Sometimes uh, he uh, Sometimes we get misled. Even Wikipedia sometimes leads you to uh, the wrong. A... Uh, <laughs> right. I think about how you know shut right. the different from one
1: really to But just because it's a polemic, you know, doesn't mean also can't have a reason because you know it's a polemic against something that
0: really seems disgusting or wrong you know, yes. for other reasons right right now uh, But you note that he didn't offer that explanation here. It's interesting. I don't have anything against the explanation that it's disgusting or wrong or cruelty or things like that. That explanation of Basar B'chalab, if that's meaningful to you, then far be it for me to try to uh, shoot down an explanation like that. But it's interesting that Rambam, who knows about such explanations, who has offered such explanations, we've seen such explanations, we saw such an explanation about... Uh, about, uh, about the bird's nest Rambam himself in the text that we saw in the first uh, day in the guide of the perplexed he said that it has something to do with cruelty that it would be an overly cruel thing to do and it would inculcate cruelty and that it's not really as we said then that God is concerned about the birds but he's concerned about you he doesn't want you becoming a cruel person and he doesn't want you doing something like this that's cruel they didn't say that here he said You know, it just resonates to me as being something that's a polemic against uh, idolatry. And uh, I will just mention as a kind of aside, some scholars of uh, Ugaritic have argued that Cyrus Gordon has misread that uh, misread that Ugaritic text, but I hope that they're wrong, because uh, you know I don't see myself as uh, one of the big experts in Ugaritic, but it's so nice if Cyrus Gordon is right to say that the Rambam, just with his sense of looking at the text, and my my professor uh, who taught me most of the academic Bible that I learned was Professor uh, Nahum Sarno, from Libracha, and... That was truly Nahum Sarna's approach also, that whenever he saw a biblical verse, he was truly a disciple of the Rambam. And he said, if only I could understand better the society from which the ancient Israelites uh, came, then I'll be able to understand the text of the Torah a little bit. Well, that's an interesting idea that laws were purposely given that the non-Jews would find strange in order to uh, uh, help the Jews remain uh, separate. I'm not sure that that's what uh, Rambam is saying here, but I'm not against, uh, not against that, uh, that theory. Now, let's just think a little bit of the implications of Rambam's uh, explanation. So we have a... Rambam says that this rule is a polemic against a pagan process, and let's say for the sake of argument that Cyrus Gordon is right, and let's say that this is a polemic against a practice that used to go on uh, uh, 3,500 years ago, and Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to make sure that if the uh, Jews were setting up their form of worship, that they would not be... uh, what has Rambam accomplished with this explanation, and what has he not accomplished with this explanation? On
1: the one hand, we have uh, logical. On uh, the other hand, the Amish keep changing what they're willing to do to still be different. Originally, they could not have refrigerators. have They use bottled gas rather than gas piped into the
0: house. Mm-hmm. To be different, right? Right. And if the purpose is, you know, I'll, I'll put it even more baldly, if the purpose is to polemicize against uh, something that uh, that hasn't existed for 3,000 years, shouldn't we maybe have new rules that are polemicizing against things that uh, uh, that uh, that exist uh, that exist now? Uh, you know, that, that this is the troubling nature of the entire thrust of Rambo, Not. Not the other systems, but Ram, specifically Rambam's system of Ta'amea mitzvot seems extremely unsatisfying to us uh, today. It, it, you see, if your purpose in looking at Rambam at the end of the Guide of the Perplexed is try to help you observe these mitzvot, you are going to find the, the, his explanations very unsatisfying. But I think that he had a different purpose in what he was trying to do. I agree. Right. Right. It's true. He did not. Uh, he did not wrap it up. I think that he was ac- trying to accomplish two things. It's very close to what you just uh, uh, what you just said. First of all, I think he was trying to accomplish that people should not think that the laws of the Torah are irrational and stupid that he was not particularly concerned about somebody going against the rules about eating meat and milk he was concerned about people leaving the system entirely and he is trying to convince you that the system is not a stupid irrational system and you know this is like this is like the professor's explanation the professor who tells you to look at the and of where it came from and, and that if you agree that that was the situation in life, that that's where people, that, that was how the world was constructed back in those days and that it was necessary to have the Jews uh, separate from uh, from the society that was around them for many valid reasons, then you say to yourself, oh, the rule wasn't stupid. And that is his I would say that that is his primary goal. I would say that he also has a secondary goal that I alluded to yesterday. I think that his secondary goal is that he does not want you to be looking for the mystical explanations that he knows are beginning to be promulgated and that you studied yesterday afternoon if you were here yesterday afternoon. And that he wanted none of that. He wanted people to say that these laws laws make sense. And now, when you and I look at these kinds of explanations, when we look at ameiham mitzvot, we we're trying to help ourselves in the observance of the Mitzvot. So we're trying to make it meaningful for us. We're trying, you know, when when somebody offers us uh, some uh, meat and milk together, we'd like to have some kind of reason why this is meaningful for me to refrain from eating something of that nature when uh, somebody makes a mistake in my kitchen and puts some milk into a flasix uh, pot and I'm throwing the pot away or uh, or doing some koshering or whatever is appropriate to do in a situation like that I'd like to feel like I'm doing something that's meaningful to my life he's not giving you those kinds of explanations he is trying as the uh professor of Jewish history to tell you that historically these laws made perfect sense in the context in which they came from and do not ridicule the Torah and on the one hand and do not mysticize the Torah on the other hand. I think those are the two, uh, the two goals that he has. And so just to finish off this session with something entirely wild and entirely different, uh, look at the last text in the handout on page 12. Pardon me? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Yosef Bechor Shor, a Tosafist living at the end of the 12th century in northern France. Uh, according to scholarly consensus, Yosef Bechor Shor is also the rabbi known as Yosef of Orleans. Of Orleans. Uh, came from Orleans in France. Uh, quoted in the Tosfot uh, uh, often look what he says here do not bashal a kid in its mother's milk according to you want to know what this pl- text really means uh, maybe just to, to back up for a second I haven't a scintilla of doubt that Yosef Behor Shor the Tosafist observed the rules of, uh, of uh, Basar B'chalab certainly he was very strict in his observance of the rules of uh, not mixing meat and milk But again, this kind of uh, 12th century openness. I'm going to offer you something, an entirely new way of looking at the biblical text that you never thought of before that has nothing to do with Jewish law. Do not bashal a kid in its mother's milk. According to the plain meaning of scripture, bashal means to grow and to ripen, as in the phrase, it's into great seed. Shilu. The verse is saying, do not let the kid grow up and be weaned of its mother's milk. Do not delay bringing it as a sacrifice until after the goat has grown on its mother's milk. Rather, bring it right away. If you've decided to bring a sacrifice, uh, bring it. There, there's a text in by Yikra, that says, that for the first seven days of, a, uh, of an animal's life, it is not to be offered as a sacrifice, but from the eighth day on it can be. And it's better uh, to, to bring the sacrifice while it's young. This is similar to the thought in the beginning of the verse that says, bring the first fruits of your land. The present that you bring to God should be the first fruits not the ones that are the last ones that you harvest from the tree. And the animal that you sacrifice to God should be a young animal, not an older animal. You shouldn't wait for the animal to have weaned. Entirely wild, but this is somebody who is looking at the biblical verse, allowing the biblical verse to interpret itself, saying there are two clauses in this verse, one about first fruits and one about animals. I'm going to assume that they interpret each other, and creative kind of uh, of interpretation uh, takes us away entirely from Basar Bechalav, doesn't help us at all in our desire to try to find more meaning in Basar Bechalav, but showing you that, as Rambam once said, the gates of interpretation have not been closed, that there are... Uh, the possibility of new interpretations, of new understandings of the uh, of the text are always around. This does not necessarily mean, and I would maybe say even more strongly, this does not mean changing the rules, but it means new study, new understanding, new uh, intellectual insights into the words of the rabbis. And that's... Uh,